Our scripture reading this morning will come from Psalm 13. <clears throat> As you turn to Psalm 13, I would mention to you that this is a lament psalm. And we're going to talk a little bit this morning as we go through Psalm 13, exactly what that means. So Psalm 13, it's a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord. My God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Almighty God, most kind and gracious Father, we give thanks for this word, this revelation to us. We pray that the Spirit might plant these words in our heart, that they might be there when we need them. Father, I would ask that you give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech this morning as I try to teach from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Scars. I've got a few scars on my body. <laughs> got them on the back of my head. I've got them on the front of my head. I've got them on my neck. I've got them on both legs. And those are just the ones I can see. No doubt I have several smaller scars that are less noticeable. But they're still there. And a scar is from a wound that's been healed. I can remember of these scars that I told you about on my head and my neck and my legs. I can remember... when I received that wound, every one of them, like it was yesterday. Even, even the oldest scar, not really the oldest scar, but the scar that I can remember on my left leg. It's about eight inches long and it goes from my knee right straight down my shin. I was about six years old when I got that scar I had just recently learned how to ride my bicycle without training wheels. That's a big deal, right? That's a big thing. Well, the house that we lived in sat at the top of a hill. A hill far too big for a six-year-old boy that had just learned how to ride a bike without training wheels down. That was not in my future. But I was going to ride that bike. So what I did when I wanted to ride my bike, I'd get to the top of the hill and I'd point that sucker down the hill and give it a push. And down the hill it would go tumbling and flipping and banging. I quite enjoyed that. 
I really did. Maybe more than riding the bike. But you might imagine that wasn't very good for the bicycle. Somebody here might still ride a bike and hear that. It's not good for your bike to throw it down the hill. It looks really cool, but it's not good for it. And as the bike would go down the hill, sometimes the chain would come off. Can't ride the bike without a chain. Well, my father showed me how to remedy that. It's real easy, son. You put the chain on part of the sprocket, and you turn the pedals, and the chain will feed on. No big deal. Even a six-year-old boy could do that. So I would turn this bicycle upside down on its seat and handlebars so the wheels are up in front of me, and the, the sprocket is right here. On one particular occasion, after rolling the bike down the hill, I'm putting the chain back on, and the bike slipped. And it falls towards me. And wouldn't you know, one of the teeth on that sprocket caught my knee and went straight down my leg. Now, of course, there was a, it, didn't, it wasn't a deep wound. It bled a little bit, but I didn't run and tell my parents about it because that would be the end of my bike riding for that day, no doubt. And really, to a six-year-old boy who just learned to ride a bike, that blood running down my leg was pretty cool. I'm riding around on my bicycle with dried blood on my leg like some kind of war hero. That was 53 years ago but I can still remember it like it was today. And often, when I see that scar, my mind wanders back down memory lane to a simpler time. And that's what scars do. They remind us of a previous event in our lives. A scar occurs as the wound heals. I learned that no two scars are alike. Each one is unique, and its formation is based on multiple things. I also learned that over time, smaller scars, the ones that seem like they disappear, they really don't. The reality is a scar rarely ever completely disappears. Even surgical remedies can't eliminate that. Now, makeup can cover a scar, but it can only cover it. It can't make it disappear. A scar is the result. It's a reminder a permanent reminder of a wound. But you know, not all of our scars are on our outside, are they? Some of our scars are on our hearts. Not necessarily the result of physical wounds or ailments. They can be emotional wounds, deep hurts caused to us by others. The situation that we're in, at the time. And these scars are just as permanent as the physical scars that we bear on our skin. Now, of course, I'm using internal scars as a metaphor. I think the scars are a good metaphor for the hurts of our hearts. They are not things we forget. We might repress them, bury them away, shove them down and try to cover them up, but they're still there. When these things happen in our lives, when our hearts are wounded, 
it can cause us to have a crisis of faith. And that's what we're going to see in the Psalm of David today. We'll see that David had a crisis of faith, or his faith is wounded. And we'll see that wound turns to a scar. And finally, David's faith is renewed. So many times in life we experience real heart-wrenching crises. And when we get on the other side of the crisis, when we come out of that, we find that our faith has been renewed and very often strengthened, but we still retain that scar. In the first two verses of Psalm 13, we see David has questions for God. And the first question is, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He immediately follows up with another question in verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? But he's not done. He asks again, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This psalm opens with some pretty desperate sounding questions to God. And the questions are really called laments, addressed to God himself. Now you might be wondering to yourself, if David isn't on a little bit of a slippery slope here, after all, he's talking to God. And he's questioning. He's asking questions of God. He's lamenting. I wonder if anyone in here has ever lamented to God. Well, maybe under my breath, but I would never do that out loud. David does. The Psalms do. You might be thinking about the book of Exodus right now and think about how the Israelites complained and grumbled constantly. We, have rec we also have, we have records of this in Exodus and Numbers, and as you recall, that grumbling and complaining didn't turn out too well for them. It was not received well by God, was it? In fact... God said their grumbling and complaining was a lack of belief. It's, it was unbelief. Well, now I've just told you that David is lamenting or complaining to God. And the Israelites are complaining to God. And they get chastised for it. So how, why is it different for David in the Psalms? We don't see a negative reply in the Psalms from God to David and say You're, you, you don't believe why is it different for David is it because of what David did his good works his Christian works was it because David was the perfect believer was it because he was a man after God's own heart was it because he was the king no it's, it's none of those things and to see that difference, we're going to have to have a refresher this morning on the Psalms. And the first thing I want you to observe is that the stories in Exodus and Numbers are just that. They're narratives that tell the story or the history of Israel. The Psalms, on the other hand, are Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is much different than our idea of poetry. Our idea of, po of poetry 
It's lines that rhyme, right? We like to rhyme. The words rhyme. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. It's thought-based, and it's expressed in balanced parallel lines. In other words, you see two lines in a psalm, and they kind of seem to say the same thing, but yet just a little bit different, because that next line is advancing the previous line. And that's how the psalms work. The idea is being advanced in each progression of lines. Uh, Hebrew poetry also uses quite a bit of imagery, um, but our, our Western poetry can use imagery too, so that is not <clears throat> a huge um, significant difference. But you should see that the difference between Hebrew poetry and Hebrew narrative is pretty substantial. But those differences don't do much to explain why David gets away with it and the Israelites don't. So we're going to have to go someplace else to further develop that idea. So the next thing that we want to understand is the, the word psalm is translated as praise. So the book of Psalms can be translated as the book of praise. But the Psalms are more than just a book of praise. They became the Hebrew book of worship. Yes, the Hebrew book of worship contains laments, questions of God in the Hebrew book of worship. Now, to our Western ears, that sounds a little bit odd. We probably don't have many hymns or prayers that we can think of off the top of our heads that have some sort of a complaint tone to them. The songs we sang this morning were joyous. There wasn't any complaint or lament in there. If that doesn't shock you, maybe this will. There are 150 psalms in the Bible. Sixty of those psalms, the book of praise, the book of worship, 60 of them are laments. That's approaching half of the book of worship and praise are laments with questions to God. Why? How long? That should rattle you a little bit. <laughs> That's not how we think, is it? Well, if we're engrossed in the Psalms, it's how we think. But Westerners are not um, typically engrossed in the Psalms. In fact, the book of Psalms begins with lament. Now, Psalm 1 and 2 function as an introduction to the book of Psalms. And <clears throat> excuse me, many scholars believe, scholars, many people believe that Psalm 1 and 2 might have been actually one psalm. But Psalm 1 and 2 both contrast the righteous and the wicked. And then, right away, after the introduction, we break into lament. Lament psalms. And they continue throughout the book until the end of the book. And how does the end of the book of praise end? With praise psalms. But those laments are interspersed right up to the end. So the book begins with lament and ends with praise. 
There's an important reason for that. It's the pattern of our lives. It really is. Our lives are full of lament. But as believers, they end in praise. Everyone's life is full of lament. But a believer's life ends in praise. Did you know every one of us has a scar? You were born with it. It came right after your birth. Mine's a little harder to see these days, but your belly button, your navel, that's scar material. I find it ironic that it's on the stomach. Covers the womb from where God formed you and from where you came. But just a little while after your introduction, a wound was placed on your body. And what do, they, what do we do with babies when, when, they come, when they're delivered? We want them to what? Cry. Lament. That's how life begins. It's how the Psalms begin. That's how the Bible begins. The book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, introductory material. What happens in chapter 3? Sin makes an appearance, and everything changes. Lament follows right behind sin. Does lament disappear in the New Testament when Jesus gets here? No. Some would say it's magnified. And it continues right through the book of Revelation. In fact, as the book of Revelation describes, and as it comes near its conclusion, there's a lot of lament. There's a lot of agony. There's a lot of distress. There's a lot of bad things going on. But the book concludes with the ultimate praise, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. So the Bible begins with lament and ends with praise. The Psalms within the Bible begin with lament and end with praise. Our lives as believers begin with lament and end with praise. You know, John Calvin called the book of Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. All the ranges of emotions are expressed. He says, the Psalms weave an emotional fabric for the human soul. These inspired lyrics take us by the hand and train us in proper emotion. They lead us to emotional maturity. David Pallison was a professor at Westminster, Philadelphia before he succumbed to cancer recently. Dr. Pallison was a very strong voice and a prolific writer among the biblical counseling movement. I have many of his books, and I've enjoyed some of his videos. He also maintained a counseling practice of his own. He used the Psalms extensively in his work as he helped people through difficult periods in their lives. Like Calvin, he described the Psalms as full of profound richness. They were 
the key to the soul for both worship and hurt. If you are a lover of the Psalms or someone who regularly spends time in the Psalms, then you've no doubt observed these things. Perhaps even thought the same thing. If you're someone who does not regularly spend time in the Psalms, meditating on the Psalms, I hope after today you might reconsider that. You might reconsider and make that investment. After all, the opening psalm says, Blessed is the man, the one who meditates on and delights in God's law. And by law, the psalmist means teaching and instruction. And that's exactly what we find in God's word. It's the best way I know, short of opening up the Bible, to draw on these treasures when you need them most. If they're hidden in your heart, they're, they're going through your mind as you struggle. If they're not hidden in their heart, you can go get your Bible. You can open up before you start reading. So what did praise mean for the Hebrews? Since praise is the dominant theme of the book of praises, it's probably important for us to understand exactly what praise meant. According to Dr. Mark Futado, who's an expert in Semitic languages and widely published on the Psalms, in Hebrew, there are three basic words for the praise of God. One we translate as bless. One we translate as give thanks. And the other is praise. I hate it when somebody gives a definition and uses the word in the definition, but it's Dr. Furtado. So what am I going to say? He's one of my professors. And there are other words as well, such as extol, exalt, and glorify. The book of Psalms provides us a couple of answers to help us understand exactly what they mean by praise. The first we can easily understand. To praise is an exclamation. It's a statement to simply offer praise to God. It's what we do in our hymns. It's simply our exclaiming praise to God. The second use and more common statement, praise the Lord, can be explained like this. If I said to you, open the door, I'm expecting a pretty specific response, aren't I? What I'm not expecting is for you to repeat back to me, open the door, please. I'm expecting a response. It's a request for action. So when the Psalms say, praise the Lord, a response is expected. Well, what does that response look like? We carry out the command to praise the Lord by first acknowledging and confessing who God is and what he's done on our behalf. And in doing so, we are blessing him. We are bringing him honor and glory. Lest you think I'm just dreaming up whatever I want it to be, let's look at an example from Psalm 103, where the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. He's talking about himself. And hopefully as you read and become engrossed in the psalms, you're putting yourself in that story. 
And now it's no longer the psalmist, it's yourself saying, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Okay, so there's the command to praise the Lord. It's expressed in parallel lines, and we're going to see what the response is or what the praise looks like. Now, the last line we read was, and forget not his benefits. Then we read, who forgives all your sin and heals your sickness, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He made his ways known to Moses, his deeds to the people. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, this kind of adoration goes on throughout this psalm. And earlier, I, I told you that there are three words generally describe the praise of God, to bless, to give thanks, and to praise, or acknowledge and confess God's goodness and his attributes. And that's exactly what we see in Psalm 103. So now back to the question we asked earlier. Why was it not okay for the Israelites to complain in the wilderness, but in the lament psalms it's acceptable? In the wilderness... Israel complained about the lack of bread, they complained about the lack of meat, they complained about water. They pretty much assumed the worst about God. He wants to kill us. He brought us out of Egypt to kill us. The people who had just recently been dramatically rescued from Egypt, saved through the Red Sea, turned on the rescuer and painted him as a villain. But in the Psalms, the book of worship, Israel asked God to answer according to his unfailing love. Because he is a God of justice and righteousness. And because he's been faithful in the past. By contrasting Israel in the wilderness with Israel in worship, we can see that Israel's complaint in the wilderness was an accusation against God that maligned his character. But a lament psalm is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. And that idea will become important in a bit in, later in this psalm. In fact, it's a main component of every lament psalm except two. Now, one final note on the difference. In the Old Testament narratives, the people grumble among themselves. They complain to Moses and Aaron. They do not take their appeal directly to God. Not only that, they complain to Moses as if everything was his fault. They were challenging the under-shepherd that God had placed to oversee them. They didn't take the complaint directly to God. They challenged his shepherd. The Israelites were more concerned with their current wounds or bad situation. They didn't take time to look at their scars. They failed to remember when they stood at the edge of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army charging down on them. They had nowhere to go. The sea is at their back. And the army is charging at them. Where will they go? 
but God. Two of the greatest words in Scripture, but God. When times were tough in the wilderness, they failed to look at the scars. They failed to remember how faithful God had been when it, all seemed, when it seemed that all hope was lost. Instead, they were only concerned with the current situation, how bad it was. They grumbled and complained. What is the biblical principle when you have a grievance? It's not to complain among yourselves. That might be called gossip. Well, I don't want to say anything. Well, I don't mean anything by this, but remember two of the greatest words in Scripture, but God. Oh, we take advantage of that but part. We leave God out, don't we? It's a sin. The biblical principle is to go to the party directly responsible. You take the complaint to where the buck stops. You don't make pennies amongst yourself. In the Psalms, the book of worships, the concerns are directed at God himself. Now here's a takeaway that I want you to see from that. The book of worship allows for lament. You're not going to be struck dead if you lament to God. He understands our trials, the wounds of our hearts. Based on what we've seen in the Psalms so far, he expects to hear our laments. Remember what we said, though. A lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in who he is. Now, in Psalm 13, David sounds desperate. Whatever his trouble is, we don't know. He may have been fleeing from Saul. He may have been fleeing from Absalom. He may have been on his deathbed. We simply don't know who the enemy of verse 2 is. The Holy Spirit doesn't let us in on David's specific circumstance. I believe that's for our own good. It allows us to understand that, like David, we can bring our laments to our Father. We don't have to be on our deathbed. We don't have to be the king of Israel. We don't have to be fleeing some great danger. Whatever has wounded our heart can be spread at the feet of our Father through Christ his Son. Our laments should involve praise. Remember what praise for the psalmist involves. Confessing who God is and what he has done. Praise is worship. It's got to be part of our lament. Lament away, but remember what it is. It's okay to cast your, your cares, your concerns, your questions before God's feet. But remember what a lament includes, lest you just be bowed down complaining. Before we move on to the rest of the psalm, I want you to notice the question David asked four times. How long? How long is an important idea that we need to quickly look at? How long does it take to read this psalm? 30 seconds? 45 seconds? Maybe a minute? It's the shortest of the lament psalms. Six short verses that take almost no time to read. 
But the how long question should cause us to stop and ask our own question. Ooh, how long was David in distress? How much time passed from the writing of the first line of this psalm to the writing of the conclusion of the psalm? We don't really know that, do we? If he was from fleeing from Saul, that was a pretty long time. Whatever the circumstance was, we must not assume, just because it's a short psalm and we can read through it like that, that this was a short-term event. The wound was deep. It needed time to heal. The, we just, we, I guess my point is, don't think because it's short that the event David talks about is short. And some of the wounds that we receive are not short-lived either. Some of you have physical ailments right now <clears throat> that may be with you the rest of your life. You might have been dealing for months with an ongoing illness. There could be some family issue that just refuses to resolve itself. You might be grieving a loss that still leaves you feeling so alone. And I can go on and on and on. Each one of us could make a list that would fill a book. So just like David, we all deal with wounds that sometimes never seem to heal. And there are some wounds that just won't heal this side of heaven. And many of the lament psalms are like this. The psalmist gives us the impression that they have dealt with this affliction for more than a little while. They've been dealing with it for some time, and they do not mind telling God how weary they have become. Now, David moves from asking God how long to pleading for help in verses 3 and 4. Now, and there's a movement here. And if we just breeze through this psalm, we're going to miss it. That's why we meditate on the law. In verse 1 and 2, he asked God how long, and now he's pleading for help. It's faith. David's faith, while it's wounded, is at work. It's coming to life. I've taken counsel in my own soul. I can't resolve this. I'm desperate. I'm at the end of myself. Isn't that where we often have to get? And the faith is waking up, but God. He knows that God's still there, even though his questions in the first two verses seem to suggest, where'd you go, God? He knows that God still hears him. He knows that God has not left him. If he didn't know that, why would he be calling out to him? It's his faith in God that's at work. In Hebrew, the address in verse 3, which we read as, O Lord my God, is translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh. God's covenant name. David knows that God is faithful to his covenant promises. Even though he feels abandoned, David knows that Yahweh is his God. He's moving beyond taking counsel in his own soul 
and he's moving in the right direction. He does seem to offer some advice to God. Well, here, if you do this, you know, that A plus B and God does C kind of thing. But the point is he's moving away from trying to resolve it himself. And he's moving towards God. He makes three requests of God. Consider, answer, and light up my eyes. He follows those three requests with three reasons why God might want to answer him. First is David might die because of this wound. And the next two regard the enemy, or in regards to the enemy that he's facing. The word consider can also be understood as look or turn your face to me. Remember in verse 1 where David asked God, how long will you hide your face from me? What is it that David is seeking? He's asking for something akin to the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It really is his deepest longing. Of course he wants the enemy defeated. But his deeper need is his faith. He needs to be reassured by God that he's there. He needs God's face upon him. He's pleading for the promise of the blessing. Imagine, and, and surely you've probably felt this way at some point. It felt, it, we're going through a bad time and it just feels like God's not there. We're desperate. We don't know what to do. I can't resolve the situation. I don't know what to do. David was in that situation, and he pleads with God to know that the promise is true. He asks for the problem to be solved, but he's pleading. Reassure me. Remind me of who you are. Let me know the promise is true. And David asked God to enlighten his eyes. And the eyes are the windows of faith, aren't they? They're the windows into our soul. In David's day, the eyes were also a measure of your health and well-being. He just needs reassurance from God. He's asking God to allow him to see God, to see that God is still there. Do you know the Apostle Paul asked for the same thing? He didn't ask for it for himself. He asked for it for the church at Ephesus. And if you come to Bible study on Wednesday night, you'll probably hear about this. Let me read that for you from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I hope you noticed in the music this morning a sense of, open my eyes, I want to see God. I hope you saw that. In his darkness, David is asking that the heart of the eyes of his heart be enlightened. He's asking for his faith to be strengthened so that he might see 
God more clearly in the darkness. When it seems like God has abandoned us, we must trust that he has not. According to the Psalms, he expects us to come to him with these laments. Of course, like David, we, want, we would like for the wound to be healed. It's the wound that drove us here in the first place. But just like David, our deeper need is that our faith does not succumb to our wound. We need to plead with God when life has made us desperate to enlighten the eyes of our hearts, to give strength to our faith. We need to be reminded. How can we be reminded? The scars. The scars that your heart bears from previous wounds that have healed. There's a reminder that God was faithful. He will always be faithful. He's always good to us. And you might be sitting there asking yourself, well, Mike, you might think it's David's faith, but I'm thinking it's, it's the enemy he's talking about. So I don't know how you, where, where you get this from. I'll tell you where I get it from. The Psalms tell me that. David tells me that himself. In fact, all of the lament Psalms, except for those two, tell me that. I can see it in David's other psalms, and I'll get to that in a minute. But first, this. Remember once again the use of parallelism and how that works. Lines that seem to repeat themselves with a different word are also advancing the poem. They're advancing an idea. Let's look at the last two verses. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That is quite a dramatic shift from what was just going on, is it not? It's quite a shift from how long, God, to I will sing. He's dealt bountifully with me. Did the Holy Spirit just have David leave out part of the psalm? Where God healed David's wound? Where God trampled David's enemy? How do we move from lament to praise? Let's look at another one of David's lament psalms, and it's a doozy. We're all familiar with Psalm 22, and it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not, and by night I find no rest. That lament continues for 19 more verses. And it makes Psalm 13 pale in comparison. Do you know how it ends? The same way. In praise. That is how the laments work. Just like the Christian life. Just like the book of Psalms. Just like the Bible. It begins with lament. For the believer it ends in praise. The lament Psalms do not give a single hint of God solving the problem. Whatever the distress is, it's not there. We just go from lament to praise. Don't think for a minute it's instantaneous. It's not how faith works. It's a process. We've already talked about how long it might have taken in David's life for this psalm to be completed. 
We don't know how long, but we can tell from his questions. Like most of the other lament psalms, it took some time. How long? Maybe years. But the healing begins with your first cry. Your first cry to God, the healing begins. The scar of your wound begins to heal just a little bit. God will meet you in the darkness. You'll be strengthened. And this crisis of faith that you're going through will move in a positive direction. And some wounds take a long, long time to heal. Maybe more years than you have left on this earth. But a bad wound has to be cared for. It has to have attention. Don't let your wound become rotten and fester. Don't let your wound destroy your faith. Continue to cry out to God. And yes, tell him about the dark night of the soul that's plaguing you. Ask him to take it away if it be his will. But above all, ask him to strengthen your faith that you might endure the pain of your wound, no matter how long it lasts. Ask him to enlighten the eyes of your heart. It's not just an Old Testament psalm thing. It's a child of God thing until Christ returns. And when he returns and the new heavenly city descends on the earth, the only scars that matter will not be yours. They will be the scars on the body of our risen Savior. Let me conclude with this. God will never abandon you. Those scars that you bear are proof of that. Sometimes it feels like he's abandoned us. But one of the lament songs we mentioned earlier confirms what I'm telling you. Christ was expressing that same feeling of abandonment abandonment that David did, that same feeling that you and I have both felt. Just before Christ went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells his disciples. He confesses to them that his soul was troubled or deeply grieved even grieve to the point of death. And then what does he do? He petitions the Father three times. He's offering God solutions. If there be any other way, take this cup from me. Let it pass. That's our Lord and Savior. I think it's okay for you to ask. I really do. You know one interesting thing here. When Christ prays to his Father, he always addresses him as Father, my Father. With one exception. Those scars on his body come as a result of a day when
when even Christ uttered a lament to the Father. From Psalm 22. While hanging on the cross, Jesus lamented to God. And he did not refer to him as my Father, but as my God. When he quotes from Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, as he is bearing the wrath of God for our sin, hanging in agony, beaten, mutilated, his body torn, mocked and spat upon, as he approaches death, God the Father has forsaken the Son. He's turned his face away as Christ drinks down that cup of wrath. What the psalmist, or you and I, in our dark night of the soul, only feel Christ fully on our behalf experienced. There was no communion between the Father and the Son. For a brief time, only judgment to satisfy the eternal penalty of our sin. In the deepest possible way, the Father had to turn his face from the Son briefly. Christ was abandoned utterly and completely so that God will never have to abandon you or me. In the darkest hours of your deepest wounds, when it feels like God has turned his face away, he is always nearby. He's waiting to hear from you. He's expecting to hear our lament. He's waiting to hear not only our hurt and struggle. He desires to hear our praise and to hear our hearts worship. Do not be timid, brothers and sisters, when the darkness comes. Cast yourself at his feet. And pour out your heart to him. Your faith will be strengthened as another scar begins to form. Amen.